is Matthew 16, 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He asked them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come up a lot, especially as we come into this second half of Matthew's Gospel. And the, the issue that comes forward today is really, what do you believe? What do you believe? We might ask the question, why do you believe it? But what you believe, as you think about what you believe, the question that follows that is, does it make a difference in how you live or in the way that you live? And we might have different answers for that, but I think we would all admit that the truth is, what we believe very much shapes how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we act, how we work, every part of what we do. The question is, what fruit have you witnessed being produced as a result of what you believe? And the question is, how do, we, how do we come to believe in something? Well, we come to believe in something or in someone because of what we hear. And what we believe will bear fruit through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions. Jesus, as he engages with the Pharisees and Sadducees as they come to him asking for a sign, he follows that up by teaching his disciples. And it has to do on, on, on what the Pharisees and the Sadducees' teaching was. And he wanted them to be aware of it. And the question is, do we, do we place as much emphasis upon being aware of what it is we're being taught? What it is we're listening to? Of the doctrine that we accept, that we reject, and how we respond to it? And why we accept it and reject it? Because what we encountered in the first part of the passage, it really is the fruit of what the Pharisees and Sadducees taught and believed. That fruit ultimately resulted in their denying who Christ is and what he came to do. He uses that to teach his disciples once they go back across the lake. But it brings that question before to us is, do we know what we believe? Do we know why we believe it? Do we daily go back to the source of what we believe? And are we growing each day in that understanding of why we believe it? So that we can be prepared in season and out of season to explain to people the hope that we have. Because that's what we find when we come into God's Word. That's what we find when we come into Scripture. We want to be careful. Because as we read it, we know that truth is found here, but there will be others that maybe come and want to add to it or take away from it. And we see that in these groups that are before us today in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But be thinking about what you believe. Be thinking about why you believe it. And be examining the fruit that comes from it. Because as they finish with this feeding of the 4,000 and they've come into the region of Magadan, which is back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, it seems pretty quickly the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've come and they're coming to test him. And we've seen groups come before to check this out, see who he is. But it's interesting because here's our first interaction that Jesus has with the group called the Sadducees. It's interesting, the group that they're paired up with. If you're of a certain age or have watched enough reruns, perhaps the theme song for the odd couple comes up, because this is an odd coupling. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't friends. They didn't like to hang out. If you met these guys together, you would say, something's up, because you guys don't hang out unless you have to. And they would at the Sanhedrin meetings, because the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of the Jews, was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Other than that, they didn't really want to spend much time together. 
But here they are together, apart from that, and they've come to Jesus, and it says they've come to test him. But there's something with this grouping. Something has them concerned in order for them to come together. And that concern was Jesus. They distrusted him, and they hated him. It's become pretty clear over scripture, over the course of the unfolding of Matthew. It's sort of one of those situations where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. John Calvin comments on this, though ungodly men quarrel among themselves, their internal conflicts never prevent them from conspiring against God. And that's what these two are doing and entering into a compact for joining their hands and persecuting the truth. We already know that the Pharisees have started conspiring to eliminate Jesus. It seems now, because the Sadducees have joined along with them, that they're joining in that. And as they come together, we want to know some things about them. The Pharisees, and some of this maybe we already know, but it's good to remember. The Pharisees, they're a group, they believed all the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, were the word of God. The Pharisees believed in miracles. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and of life after death. And we also know that the Pharisees were very exacting in their personal piety. So the Pharisees, those, those were the things that kind of summarized them as a group. The Sadducees, interestingly enough, they're pretty much the opposite of all of this. The Sadducees, they only accepted the Pentateuch, which are the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't believe in miracles, which I think is really interesting because if you're familiar with the first five books of the Bible, there's plenty of miraculous things that happen in there with the unfolding of how God works among men. But they didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in life after death. And for some people, that helps them remember the Sadducees' name. They didn't believe in life after death and resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. They were comfortable with Roman rule and society. They didn't, they didn't really have any qualms about that. They liked the arrangement that they had. And so if they looked a little bit like them, that was okay. The interesting thing about both of them, as they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, is that neither of them were content with what God had revealed. And neither of them were content with Christ, who he said he was, and who he'd been revealed to be. And so they come together. And they show up, and it says they came to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you've been paying attention, he's been doing some signs. There's been a few in the unfolding of Matthew. We've seen blind people seeing. We've seen lame people walking. We've seen any number of signs that were there. We've seen the feeding of 5,000 and now 4,000. And so they come, and it's rather disingenuous for them to come and say what? Hey, Jesus, we need a sign. He could return to them and just say, guys, haven't you been paying attention? He didn't. He does reply. But they come, and we need to recognize this for what it is. It's an insincere and it's an evil request. Because as members of the Sanhedrin, they would have been friends with a guy that we meet in John, whose name is Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, Nicodemus confesses to Christ when he comes to him at night, we know you are a teacher sent from God because no one can do the things that you do unless they are from God. And so he's making this confession as a member of the Sanhedrin of that group of 70 that we know this about you, and here they come. Show us a message from heaven. Show us a sign from heaven. Well, here's the thing, if they already knew him to be a teacher sent from God and that he's a messenger from God, to demand a test or to demand a sign from him is not to put the messenger to the test, but also, by extension, to put who to the test? To put God to the test. Well, they, both of them, would agree with Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. The Israelite people in the wilderness put God to the test and as Moses writes to them, writes to them as a reminder of the second telling of the law in Deuteronomy, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And we know that they tested Moses, an extension that was seen as a test of God. So it's a similar situation here. They're putting this one, who they confess as a teacher from God to the test. And so they're putting God to the test. But here's the thing. Do they need another sign? Would they accept another sign? Would they believe another sign? See, the problem is blind men, they don't see. 
And that's what we have here. We have a tendency to look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and sometimes even the disciples and go, are these guys stupid? And it's not that they're stupid. If, if it was, then all you got to do is give them more education and then figure things out. But they're blind. Blind men don't see. And so another sign wasn't going to convince them. It seems certain that Jesus could do a hundred more signs and it would have no greater effect on them than the testimonies of Scripture have had. They're asking for signs, but they despise them and him, and they've made that clear. Who have they said is responsible? Who gives him the power to do what he's done? In Matthew chapter 12, they've already said he does these works by the power of Beelzebul. They don't only despise his, his signs and him. They actually despise those that he proclaims his word to and performs his signs upon. And if we wonder about that, we can go and look at John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man born blind. And they give him, it's, it's kind of the inquisition when he shows up. Were you really born blind? No, we don't believe you were really born blind. Let's get his parents in here. Was he born blind? Yeah, he was born blind. Yeah, well, we don't really believe that. And then they call him back in. They're trying to question the whole fact that he was there. They didn't like the fact that this man that was born blind was made able to see by Jesus. And he teaches them they really don't like that. And they basically, they shove him out of the synagogue. They kick him out. So they hate this man who Jesus performed this sign upon that Scripture tells us only God can open the eyes of the blind. And then they double down on it because the next thing, that was the sixth sign in the chapter of John, or in the, in the Gospel of John. The seventh sign in the Gospel of John is the raising of Lazarus, who was very much, what? Dead. And in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And we read in John chapter 12, what were they planning to do with Lazarus? Kill him. Because why? Because, well, Jesus had raised him from the dead, and on account of that, many were starting to believe and follow Jesus. So you can see that no matter how many signs were put before them, they weren't going to believe, and we see them getting harder and harder and harder. And so a hundred signs would have had no greater effect on them than even the testimonies of Scripture. But then we also recognize here, they come and they demand a sign from them, and they ask this sign from them. They sound awful lot like someone we've met previously in Matthew. Satan. That's what Satan wanted in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, he shows up and asks Jesus, and he tells Jesus, hey, all you got to do, make, make, this, make these stones into bread. Do a little miracle. Prove that you're the Son of God. So do you see that they're coming with the same tact, the same approach that the Prince of Darkness himself comes with? Prove that you are this messenger sent from God. To whose satisfaction? To ours. So that's their, their test. Jesus, he gives this interesting answer. Don't you love Jesus' answers in Scripture? Right? They come and say, hey, do a sign for us. Show us a sign from heaven. And he doesn't say no. Right? He just turns around and, and he answers them. When it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky's red, and in the morning it'll be stormy today for the sky's red and threatening. He basically says, red sky in morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Apparently this was known then too. He says, you know how to look at the sky and sort of figure this out. Kind of what he says is, you're better weathermen than theologians and biblical scholars, teachers. Because he says, you can discern the signs of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. And what have they missed so far? John the Baptist comes, and, and he's austere, and he comes in the way of righteousness, and they're like, oh, no, he's, he's, he's possessed by a demon. Interesting that ends up John the Baptist is possessed by a demon, and they say that Jesus is possessed by a demon. They reject John the Baptist, the forerunner, who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They reject Jesus as he ministers, calling him a, a drunkard. They've rejected all of the signs that have been put before them so far. They've rejected the words that Jesus has spoken, which we already know that how he taught and how he spoke, it amazed the people because he taught not as their teachers had taught, with an authority that was unknown. And so they've, they've, they've missed all of these signs of the times. And then, then he just, I mean, he gets mean, right? 
Not really, but I mean, how many of you would like to be grouped in with them? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So he goes from commenting about, you can tell what's going to happen with the weather today, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. You're an evil and adulterous generation. Whoa, that escalated quickly. But we remember who these people are, right? These are the Pharisees. They're the teachers. These are the Sadducees. They're the, they're the, they're the leaders of the Jewish people. And he goes, evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And it's not the first time he said that. He said it back earlier. In Matthew chapter 12, where the sign of Jonah has come up before. But perhaps we want to understand this. There's a, we want to make a point of clarification. It's not wrong to ask God for a sign. I think we all do that, and I think faithful Christians do that. God, I want to know that what I'm doing is right. So if you would show that to me, however you would. There's a difference between asking God for confirmation, a sign to direct my path, as opposed to, God, you have to give me a sign. So it's not wrong to ask God for a sign. It is always wrong to demand from God a sign. That's to get things backwards. It's to put ourselves up and to put him down. Say, you're here for my convenience. You're here for my pleasure. But I think Jesus goes to this evil and adulterous generation. And we have to look at that. What is adultery? Adultery is a physical is a physical reality, but it gets used so often in Scripture for spiritual unfaithfulness. That you've been unfaithful to your God. You've embraced other gods. You've rejected Him and gone to another. And, and, and in this case, we do have to look back at, at the Old Testament a little bit because God had given His people the measure of what a prophet is, what a faithful prophet is, and what a false prophet is. Because the measure of the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22, it, it focuses on speaking. When we look at that, the measure of, pro the measure of a prophet, interestingly, from, from what God gave to his people, the measure of a faithful prophet has, was never the amount or the wondrousness of their signs. It was the words they spoke, and if they came to be. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 22, Moses again is writing for the Israelite people. And this is where we get the promise that God will raise up a prophet like him from among them. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, that is Moses, they're right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So if the prophet speaks something and it doesn't come to be, you don't need to what? You don't need to be afraid of him. He's not a true prophet. How much did it say about the signs that the prophet would do in there? Nothing. Interestingly enough, a little before that, Moses had recorded in Deuteronomy 13 something about a prophet or a dreamer who comes and gives signs or wonders. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass, do you see how this is leaning in, in the direction of favor of this prophet? And if he says, let us go after other gods, uh-oh, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams no matter how wonderful the sign might be. 
If they come and then say, let us go after other gods, you are to say what? No. Because you are leading us astray. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. God had revealed to them the measure of a true and a false prophet. Now, as Jesus comes, there are signs and wonders that abound. And all of them point to who? The reality that he is God in the flesh. Everything that he has said has come to be so far. But as Jesus speaks to these leaders of the Israelite people, the reason for the pointedness of his condemnation of the generation that seeks after a sign is that they have rejected God. He's given them the measure, and they come and they say, Show us a sign! It's almost like Jesus is saying, you're setting yourself up. Because signs have been given, words have been proclaimed, and you say, no, they're not good enough, they're not wonderful enough, and those words, we don't agree with those words, we don't like them. Give us a sign. They're setting themselves up for someone, something else that would lead them astray to come in and put a sign before them because they've rejected the Word of God. And they've rejected everything that He gives. He had told them what the measure of a true prophet was, as well as what the prophet like Moses that was to come would be like, and they were actively rejecting him. It's like those ones that go, Jesus could have said, hey, here's all these signs. Oh yeah, well we mean another one other than those, other than all those signs. Those don't count. The foolishness abounds. But they're bearing out here what Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. The Apostle Paul writes, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The fact that they're like this shouldn't surprise this because they've always been like this. Do you remember how they were delivered from Egypt? Ten pretty miraculous signs. Do you remember how God provided for them in the wilderness? Works out to about 10 more pretty phenomenal signs. Bread every day, meat, water. And what did they continue to demand? Give me another sign. Give me another sign. We're not, we're, we're, we're not that different, are we? We might stand here in our day and age and say, well, I believe that what the Bible says about Jesus, but I wasn't physically there, and so I need, I need a sign in addition to it. No, you don't. You have the Word of God confirmed through Christ, His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That's what's needed. It's not that God won't give signs along the way, because He still works, and we don't bind God's hands to work according to how He will work. But in God's word, we've been given everything that we need. Now Jesus, he does say, it's not that you won't have a sign, not that you won't get a sign. He's very specific in what their sign will be. And what is that sign? No sign will be given to it except, so here's your acceptive clause, except the sign, one, of Jonah. Well, Jesus has said this before in Matthew 12, 39 and 40. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He would walk out. That's a pretty good sign. We know what they're going to do with it. But he says, that's the sign you'll get. Jonah, in a manner of speaking, was the sign. Because do you remember what Jonah did as, I mean, after he gets spit out of the great fish? He went to Nineveh. And what did he do? Repent. And if you don't, in so many days, God's going to destroy Nineveh. He didn't do any miracles. He didn't do any signs. He didn't do any wonders. And wonder of wonders, these Gentile pagan people who hated the Jews listened and did what? Repented at what? The preaching of Jonah. 
Jonah, he went and he did no sign. He only proclaimed God's message, and the people of Nineveh repented. Jonah also was three days and three nights in the great fish and then spit out on the shore. Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and then come out alive. When Jesus emerges from the grave, after three days, his person becomes the sign that he is God's son. Paul makes that point when he's before the philosophers in Athens in Acts 17, 30, and 31. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And Paul doesn't keep it hidden from him. He says, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now that was the breaking point for the Greeks. They're like, no, that's, and they would laugh him to scorn. But Paul says what? He says, God has given this sign because he's given assurance by, he, by raising this one from the dead. That's the sign you will be given. People may want more from God, but they're not going to get it when it comes to that. He's already given enough evidence to make every human being culpable to him by raising Jesus from the dead. Thus, all people everywhere are already under divine obligation to come to Jesus. Coming to him is not an option. It's a requirement that God himself has laid upon the world. And what's more, if you are in Christ, what has he called you to? To go out into the world and to what? To tell people about this one who has died, was buried, rose again. For them. For you. For whoever he sets you before. And then trust him that his word will not return to him empty. Because he's done everything that's needed. Now, there's a whole lot that we need to talk about with that. And the questions will come up. Why would he do that? I'm so glad you asked. It opens doors. But he's given the greatest of signs that he could ever give. And he said, go and tell people. Go tell people about it. So he tells them, this is the sign that you will get. And it would be fulfilled in him in not too long. And he left them and departed. So it seems they're going back to the other side of the lake, back to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. It's interesting. We've had bread come up three times in three chapters. Feeding to the 5,000, feeding to the 4,000. Now, uh-oh, we don't have any bread. The disciples reached the other side. They'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I mean, don't you love these guys? They began discussing it among, did you bring the bread? No, I didn't bring the bread. Did you bring the bread? I didn't bring the bread. Did anybody bring bread? No, we didn't bring bread. We brought no bread. Jesus, aware of this, no, it was probably whispered. <laughs> Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Jesus didn't even ask about what? Bread. Do you notice that he didn't ask about bread? He said, beware of what? The leaven. The leaven of the Pharisees. And so what Jesus is doing, he's going to use this recent encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees as a teaching opportunity for his disciples. And, and we can say this about Jesus' uh, opposition. If, if they are blind from cynical unbelief, his friends, they're half blind from weak faith and thick heads. And, and we, can, we can relate, probably, right? We go, oh, now I get it. Because notice he says, you have little faith. Not of what? No faith. There's a big difference. Because little faith keeps you where? Right next to him. And as you draw near to him, he does what? Draws near to you. You can only do so through faith. And so he says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And he just, question after question after question. You as parents or as bosses or as coworkers, have you ever been in a situation where you ask rhetorical questions? Those questions where it's like, everyone knows the answer, 
right? But bam, 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 bam. Jesus asks a series of rhetorical questions here that maybe sting a little bit, but they know the answer to. And he fires them off pretty quick. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? It's a lot of questions real fast. And if you're the disciples, you're going, okay, so let's see. Yep, five loaves for the 5,000, and we collected, um, that was right, 12, 12 baskets, that's right. And how many baskets? Yep, okay. And the seven loaves for the 4,000. Okay, yeah, I remember that. And how many baskets? Oh, we, we gathered seven baskets. Oh, but there was no lack of bread. What? Huh? You see how Jesus is using this to teach them? And it might sting a little bit. You know? If it stung a little bit with the 4,000, we're like, hey, we're in the middle of nowhere. Where are we ever going to get bread? And it's like, oh yeah, he just did this cool thing with 5,000 people. Maybe he can do it with 4,000. Well, now here we are further down the line. We have no bread, but we're with the bread maker. Doesn't come across their mind. How many of us, let's just be humble for a second, are just as guilty of something similar? I've seen, I know how you've worked here and how you've worked there. I just don't know how you could possibly work in this situation. We have no bread. Jesus didn't say anything about bread but leaven. And these rhetorical questions, they come along. And they assume that they know the answers. They're again forgetting what Jesus has very recently and now twice done with bread. Not just in their presence, but he involved them in it. He does that so often. God involves his people in his work. And how often do we forget that? Oh, that was amazing how you worked. And you brought me into it. How can that possibly be? And then we, we get forgetful. Because he even says it in that. And how many baskets what? Did you read it? How many baskets you gathered? How many baskets you gathered? They were involved in it. He's implying through this that they have enough light to piece this together. And did you notice that he doesn't give them the answer? He gets the end of the, he gets to the end of these questions, right? Five thousand, how many baskets? Seven and four thousand, how many baskets? How do you fit? How how is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He just restates what he said at the beginning. How many of you are like, could you just give me the answer, please? You were that kid in class. If we're quiet long enough. He'll give us the answer. And then sometimes you ran into that teacher that's like, nah, I can be quiet for a long time. And he restates it. He doesn't give them the answer. He restates his warning regarding the Pharisees and Sadducees' leaven and allows them to work it out, which they eventually do. Matthew doesn't keep us in suspense. Then they understood he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, you of little faith. It's interesting the context of how this happens because we want to read Matthew not just in little chunks, but in the context. Remember, it's not long ago that we read about an example of great faith, isn't it? That was found near Tyre and Sidon. And here are these 12 that have spent so much time with him. Oh, you of little faith. And whenever this phrase appears, it's, it's a gentle correction. And here again, it's the disciples on the receiving end. It's interesting that two occurrences are up on the Sea of Galilee, right? When the waves are blowing in and he's sleeping and he gets up and rebukes him, oh, you have little faith. And then Peter gets out of the boat and walks to him and he starts to sink when he sees the wind and the waves and gets him, oh, you have little faith. And the other two in Matthew's gospel occur in the proximity of concern over bread. There's this one in chapter 16, verse 8. But there's another one that they were present for. And it's back in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. It has to do with anxiety. It has to, be, has to do with the Father knowing what you need. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, as Jesus is talking about, don't be anxious, says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Exactly what they were talking about when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We don't have any bread. Did you bring bread? Did you bring bread? Nobody brought bread. Don't worry about these things. 
Don't be anxious about what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Who are you with? And they're slowly seeing who it is and figuring out and hearing it. It hasn't all connected yet, but... Do you see how he's this? He's bringing them through their experience, through their living of you're concerned about bread, but what should be your first concern? Seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. What is he there doing? Bringing the kingdom of heaven and these things shall be added to you. They're present. And if they were in need of that bread, what would he do? He would provide it. And so it's just interesting, all of the proximity of this OU of little faith and having to do with these things. And yet we have to continue to affirm that, well, it's not a compliment, neither it is. It's not an indictment of having no faith. You have little faith, and where are you? That little faith is real faith. And we know what Jesus says later on about if you had faith the size of mustard seed. Real faith perseveres with Jesus even when nothing makes sense and he perseveres with us. That's what faith does. But he makes this comparison about leaven. Leaven has this pervasive influence. It changes everything. And I don't think it's a coincidence that if you've ever seen the effect of leaven, what, what effect does leaven have on something? Very simply, it puffs it up. How many of you like to hang around with puffed up people? What were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were pretty puffed up, weren't they? So there's a physical illustration with that as well. Please don't add leaven to me. Maybe some of you are like, I'm puffy enough already. Not a commentary on anyone here, but what does leaven do? It puffs up. Arrogance. And it gets it's poison. What Jesus is making the connection to, it's poison. Because leaven, it has a pervasive influence. It changes everything. Jesus is saying that the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is similar to leaven in that it changes and affects everything. And you're seeing the fruit in what the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come to demand. Jesus is concerned about teaching. He's concerned about doctrine because that is what we all teach, whether we realize this or not. What we believe about God, about men, about the world, about everything comes out in how we live, how we work, how we speak, how we think, how we relax, everything. Jesus calls them to watch out for bad doctrine because it can poison the mind, the heart, and the soul. What is it that we do when we're tired? What we believe shapes that. How do we respond when things don't go our way? What we believe shapes that. What we do when something absolutely goes our way? What we believe shapes that. And whether we use words or not, we teach doctrine in how we respond to those things. Now, the joy of what you have in Christ is how many of us have a perfect record when it comes to responding to any of those things or other things? None. If you do see me later on, I, I got a lot to learn from you. But none. The joy of what you have in Christ is when you recognize that that has happened, you can go to him and you repent. And what do you have in him? Forgiveness. That is a gift to not be taken for granted or forgotten about. But Jesus is concerned about this because it touches everything. If we think doctrine is sort of a dirty word in some circles, right? If we think doctrine is tangential or unimportant, if we think that, we won't get very far in understanding of Jesus and of what he's accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection. Because as soon as we start to ask about Jesus, if someone says, tell me about Jesus, every word you say after that is what? It's doctrine. Because you are going to explain what you think, what you believe about him. It touches everything. 
Why is doctrine important? Jesus has already told us it's important because it's not some abstract set of philosophical or theological ideas. It definitely can get into that realm. Doctrine has as its content the nature and the character of God. What do you as a Christian want to know? Increasingly, the nature and the character of God, the one who is good and never changes, the one who's the giver of every good gift. I want to know more about him. I want to understand more about him. The one that Jesus says is our father in him. It's the character of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How we understand the character of God has a profound impact on how we live the Christian life. The Pharisees and Sadducees are an example. They're example A in this passage of the destination of those who follow the path of bad doctrine, of poisonous teaching. They demand signs from God incarnate for their satisfaction, knowing that they will reject whatever it is they might see. The blind become blinder. Christ's warning to the disciples is highly necessary because the human mind has a natural disposition towards vanity and errors. You want to test this? If you've sinned in any certain area, what does it become a lot easier to do? Sin again in that area, to follow that path that I went on. When we're surrounded by wicked inventions, false doctrines, or other plagues of the same sort, nothing is more easy than to depart from the true and simple purity of the Word of God. And if we become entangled in those things, it becomes increasingly harder for true religion to hold entire sway over us. That's not me. That's a very old Reformation theologian. Because if we're honest, what do we have? I have itchy ears. I've heard the gospel. I've heard it again and again. I've heard the goodness of Christ. I've heard of what he provides and what he does. But if I'm honest, so often, tell, is, can you give me more? People in Luther's time had itching ears. Luther, when, 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 when are we going to come in and, and you're going to tell us something other than the gospel? His response, when I see a people who looks like they believe it and remember it. Because we're so prone to go back to what I do, if I do enough. No, we need to hear the gospel. And, and there's no shortage of people who will say, here's the gospel, now here's the stuff that you can add to it to increase your standing, to make it better, to make it more sure. That's false. You need Christ, Christ alone. Anyone who would add to it is not a faithful servant of Christ. But we have these itching ears. It's why Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And sound teaching is going to sound repetitive because what are we teaching? God's Word. It's increasing in depth, so as we understand it, we grow in our understanding of each passage, of each verse, of each book. Oh, there's a depth there that I didn't see before. But as we went back to it again, I saw something I never saw before. We saw it taking place in our Sunday school class this morning with the Gospel of John. People that have read it, I don't know how many times, and yet there's a depth that still comes out. Something I hadn't noticed before. Something that I, I see it more broadly, or I see it more finely, or more focus. Having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, which is the work of what? The work of words. Proclaiming the word. Fulfill your ministry. And he said this to Timothy, whose call was to be a pastor of this congregation. But also, just because you're called to be a pastor doesn't mean that you're not called to what? Evangelize. Tell people about Christ. Did you also notice there's something else? We talk about doctrine, we talk about teaching, and we think about what God's standard for the, for the prophet, the, the mouthpiece of God was. Did you notice? Paul writes it later on. What's, what, what do you need for salvation? He answers it as he writes to Timothy. He tells Timothy, as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the words of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Did you notice anything there about what Paul said? Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. So God's word, which is able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Did you notice that there's no sign mentioned that will make you wise for salvation? The only sign is the sign that Jesus already mentioned to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The sign of Jonah, Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. And then we need to know what that means. And Paul takes the time to tell Timothy earlier, what you've heard from me, the words you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also to proclaim God's word. That good and sweet and tasty doctrine. That tasty teaching that the psalmist said in a different way, taste and see that the Lord is what? good. And Paul reminds us elsewhere in Romans 10, 17, how does faith come? Which is another way of saying, how does life come? And how is it sustained? It comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Because you see, neither the religious leaders nor the disciples, they didn't grasp the meaning of Jesus' signs. Did you catch that? They're both in the dark. Yet there's an essential difference between them. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they want a sign that will prove to their satisfaction that Jesus acts with God's favor and power. But because they've already rejected him, nothing will satisfy them. They come to test Jesus, not to find him. With that spirit and without God's spirit, because there are some of these that later on would come to believe. Without God's spirit, they will never believe. Jesus has performed enough signs for them to believe. In Scripture, we still have a sufficient record of Jesus' words and deeds. There is enough to instill faith. It is no sin to ask God for signs, as assurances of God's promises. But it is a sin to demand that he prove himself. We want to keep those things in mind. But there's something else here, too. The Pharisees, it's interesting, they were devoted to the obedience to obedience to the law of God. They believed the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, we mentioned that, that they were the word of God. They believed in miracles. They believed in the resurrection of the dead and life after death. They were the conservatives of that century. But they fell into the temptation and the trap of what often is the temptation and the trap of those on the more conservative side. What had they built up around God's word? 613 laws, which had actually done what? Jesus had already taken them to task on this. You have put up all of this stuff around, and what have you done in doing it? You have taken people away from what is necessary, from the Word. It's something, again, we have to be aware of. We have to be cognizant of. We want to be careful with. Now, on the other side, you had the Sadducees. And please don't go nutty with this. But if the Pharisees were like conservatives, the Sadducees were like what? You can say it. It's not a dirty word. Liberals. Because what did they do? They reduced the word of God. Five books, no more. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in life after death and resurrection. They didn't believe in any of that. What did they do? And they wanted to look just like, they, they didn't have a problem with looking like the Roman leadership. But on the conservative side, they added to the word of God. On that liberal side, the Sadducee side, they what? They subtracted from the word of God. What does the word of God have to say to those that row those boats? It's not positive for those people on any side. If you add to the word of God, the plagues of this book will be added to you, is what it says in Revelation. If you take away from the words of this, your name will be removed from the book of life. I don't like either of those options. 
What they had to be content with and what they were not content with is what God had revealed. One group wanted to add to it. One group said, we just want to get rid of all that distinctive stuff and just do this. Both were wrong. Both had poisonous teachings that Jesus warned his apostles, his disciples against, and by extension warns us against. It continues to be our duty today to keep our eyes on the word of God and to believe every word of it. That's why we listen so closely to what is said, especially by those who would occupy the pulpits of our churches. Because there's a couple of different people. Apollos in Acts 18 shows up having been taught, but there were some errors in it. He wasn't teaching error, but he had, wasn't teaching the fullness of the word. And he was taken aside, and he was taught, and he was equipped, and he was a great benefit to the church. But Paul also talks about and some unnamed people. Look at the graciousness of Paul. Some unnamed people that he alerts those in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. says those that would teach these things that are contrary, you need to be aware of them. He sounds like Jesus. Be on your guard. It says we give thanks. It says in 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. Sorry, I'm looking at Thessalonians. says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Look at the gentleness of Paul, even for those who were in the wrong. What does he desire to see for them, regardless of where they landed on any spectrum? Return to Christ. Listen to the word and be in him. That's what he desires. Our duty is to listen closely, to keep our eyes on the word of God, to believe every word of it. And so our prayer is, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts and minds to understand and to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that's revealed in your word. Give us faithful teachers and, yes, protect them. Because sometimes they're the first target of the enemy. Give us faith. Nourish that faith and let us grow in that faith each day by your good word. And may that good word and that good teaching be on display in every part of our lives.